Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The headline of one major report from a local civil rights organization may not be surprising. Quote, police brutality in Oakland is increasing and has reached dangerous proportions. But the year perhaps is 1949. For more than seven decades, black residents in West Oakland have testified to abuse at the hands of the Oakland Police Department. Dozens of those incidents are documented in startling detail in a new book, The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption and Cover-Up in Oakland. It's a monumental work of history, of investigative journalism, of sociology even, and it poses a fundamental question. Can a powerful and flawed institution be durably reformed? We talk with the authors after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Every institution in every large city in America has a deep, important, and convoluted history. Leaders have come and gone. By policy, racism was implanted deep in their functioning, and many efforts have been made to purge it. Our schools and courts, councils and boards share the promise and problems of our country. And no institution has been more troubled than policing, the hard edge of state power. Journalists Allie Winston and Darwin Bongram have written the definitive account of the Oakland Police Department. And reading The Riders Come Out at Night made me realize how badly we need investigative history like this for all those other institutions, too. If we're going to make a serious effort at multiracial democracy, if we're going to build cities that actually function for all their residents, then this is exactly the kind of effort that lets us reckon honestly with what's been done, who did it, and how to make things better. Joining us this morning are the authors of this new book. The book's title is The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. Allie Winston and Darwin Bond-Graham, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks so much for this work, Allie and Darwin. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So, uh, Darwin, let's start with you. Um, The riders of the title, they were a group of Oakland cops, mostly working in West Oakland. Um, Tell us a little bit about their story and how it came to light. Yeah, this is the summer of 2000, and a rookie police officer named Keith Bad, who had just graduated from the academy, he was assigned to field training. Field training is where young cops, rookies, go out with senior officers, and they learn the ropes, basically, learn how to be a police officer on the street. Keith goes out, and for about a week on the streets of West Oakland, he witnesses a number of disturbing things. He sees officers around him beating people up. Um, he sees officers planting drugs on people, throwing drugs on the ground, pinning those drugs on suspects. He sees officers writing false police reports, um, engaging in a number of alleged crimes. He's so disturbed by it, it, it really um, 
he can't go on being a police officer. He tells this to his training officer, uh, Clarence Mabanig. Uh, Mabanig tells him he's got to resign. So Bat goes to Internal Affairs and just tells this whole disturbing story. Which are like the cops of the cops, sort of. That's right, yeah. That's the little internal office within the police department that investigates allegations of misconduct. So he tells them what's going on, and um, that sets in motion an investigation that just is explosive. Um, it reveals that, yes, this, this squad of officers in West Oakland had um, done a number of things that were uh, just not just illegal, but um, in, in Keith's view, it were, these were like sadistic acts. Um, I'll just tell you one really quickly. Uh, one thing they were accused of doing was abducting a man named Delphine Allen. Allen was walking across the street one night, and this group of officers, about five of them, uh, rolled up on him in an unmarked minivan in a squad car, chased him down, uh, beat him up, threw him in the back of the squad car. And then Allen, because he was in a verbal argument with another one of these officers named Frank Vasquez, well, then Vasquez and another officer, Jude Siopno, allegedly drove him into a dark place in West Oakland under a freeway bridge and allegedly beat him, almost knocked one of his eyes out, uh, beat the bottoms of his feet so that he could not walk for several days afterward. Just a string of events like that. And this all came to light in the summer of 2000. It ended up being called the Riders Scandal. Ali, talk to me a little bit about the conditions that made the Riders possible. Like, what was the state of the city's sort of crime control and fighting operations and and how do you think the riders were able to get away with what they were getting away with? The riders <clears throat> were conducting essentially zero tolerance policing. They were not rogue officers. They were highly productive officers who brought in arrests. They produced statistics that made their bosses look good. This was the era of Jerry Brown's mayoralty in Oakland when he came, you know, Jerry Brown, when he came back into politics after some years in the, the wilderness, um, he campaigned for mayor of Oakland on a very left-wing progressive, a utopian platform almost. And by the time he got into office, um, he realized, or he had turned to a platform that one of his former colleagues in city government called Rudy Giuliani West, mm. a very aggressive um, effort to build up housing in downtown, to gentrify Oakland, to clean up the streets, get indigent people out of downtown, clean up the other areas of the city from the street drug trade, which, you know, it's always been, not always, but in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was very commonplace in Oakland. It became kind of a fixture of the city as, you know, white flight, industrial, deindustrialization, and, um, you know, the crack cocaine wave mm -hmm. came in and really kind of swept across Oakland. But, you know, the riders were the product of a very aggressive style of policing that rewarded numbers, that rewarded activity, um, you know. Their... And that protected itself, right? I mean, one oh, of the well, key themes of this book is just the, the force would always close ranks around its own. Well, there were efforts down the years to kind of clean things up and go in a different direction, but there's an internal culture, a very hardcore reactionary culture in the police department that we trace back all the way basically to its founding that's remained very present and consistent in the department. And 
depending on the period, depending on who's in charge, who's in government, who's at the head of the police department, um, has varying levels of sway. But at this point of time, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, these officers, um, their conduct was widely known. In fact, Keith was warned before field training once a, another officer learned that uh, Chuck Mabadag was going to be his FTO, his field training officer. Hey, watch out for him, you know? Huh. I mean, th- this it was not a secret. None of yeah. this was a secret in the department. And the investigation that looked into the riders was circumscribed. It only looked into the four officers who Keith Batt was able to identify as being involved in, you know, these various acts over his, you know, less than two weeks on in the field. But um, one of them, for instance, Frank Vasquez, who fled the country and is still a fugitive from justice, um, he, the allegations that came up against him later on, tracked back to 1995 mm-hmm. in East Oakland. Like, he'd worked all over the city and yeah. engaged in similar conduct. So, Darwin, what happens with the riders? You know, it comes to light. It might have been widely known within the police department, but it did create an kind of explosive uh, scandal within the city at large as, as, you know, West Oakland's longtime complaints about the police department were substantiated by one of their own, by this, uh, by this police officer. That's right. So, like we said, you know, the department conducted an internal investigation. The internal affairs case found that a number of officers had, in fact, violated people's civil rights and violated numerous department policies by, like, writing fake police reports, um, by using excessive force. So four of the officers were terminated. This was Clarence Mabanig, Jude Siopno, Matthew Hornung, and Frank Vasquez. Um, p- parallel to that, there's a criminal investigation that was going on. So the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, you know, saw the allegations. They saw the internal affairs case and said, those are crimes. So let's investigate this, this as a crime. Um, that case, the four officers, you know, ended up being indicted. Um, but as Ali said, Frank Vasquez was last seen with a department-issued rifle and and another gun in his car in the city where he lived, Susan City. He was pulled over by police. He managed to badge his way out of that incident. This is while he was on administrative leave from the department. No one has seen him ever since, so he's still a fugitive to this day. The three other officers faced trial twice. The first trial ended in a mistrial. The jury could not come to a decision um, on the charges. The Alameda County District Attorney... Uh, recharged the case as Thomas Orloff at the time um, and a deputy DA named uh, David Hollister. They felt very uh, passionate about the fact that the officers needed to be held accountable for these crimes. They wanted to send a message to law enforcement in the county that you can't do this kind of thing. So they refiled the charges. Second, uh, you know, went to trial a second time. And again, some of the charges, um, uh, the officers were, uh, there was a hung jury uh, Matthew Hornung was acquitted, um, and so the case. So then the case was never refiled. I'll just quickly add: as a result of the criminal cases never finding them guilty, many people within the Bay Area police community, and and a lot of officers in the Oakland Police Department, they viewed that as a vindication. They viewed it as this was a fake scandal. The officers never did anything wrong, mm. and they were made scapegoats by the political leadership in the city who wanted aggressive policing but were afraid to face the political consequences of it afterward, that planted the seed of resistance to reform in the long run. Because one of the things that ends up happening, connected to the writers but not exactly as a result of the criminal case, is a civil lawsuit is brought 
based on you know 119 victims of uh, of alleged police brutality by two outside civil rights lawyers, and that's actually Darwin. What ends up creating this sort of negotiated settlement, this consent decree under which the Oakland Police Department works for well to date. That's right. Two attorneys, uh, John Burris and Jim Channon. Um, both of them Oakland residents, both of them having been around the East Bay for a long time. They both had sued the Oakland Police Department dozens and dozens of times, um, starting in the 1980s uh, all the way through the 1990s. In researching this book, we we interviewed both of them um, numerous times, and they told us that they were just simply tired of suing the police department. They felt like they were part of this twisted assembly line process where the police would go out and beat someone up. That person would sort of limp into their office. Usually this person was an African-American, sometimes Latinos. They would say, I was beaten by the police. They would sue the police department. They would win a settlement, usually tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars from the police department. But this, this strategy of making the police pay it couldn't change the conditions, and so people just continued to have their rights violated. They were tired of So they took the 119 people who they could find who were allegedly abused by the rioters. They filed a civil rights lawsuit, and that's what would end up leading to the negotiated settlement agreement, which is this court agreement that, uh, beginning about 20 years ago, has instituted this reform program that's overseen by a federal judge to really try to transform the Oakland Police Department. We're talking about the Oakland Police Department, how difficult it is to create meaningful reform with Darwin Bond Graham and Allie Winston. They're the authors of a new book, The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. We'll talk with them a lot more right after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a monumental new book, a kind of investigative history of the Oakland Police Department. It's called The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. We're joined by the authors of the book, Ali Winston, an independent journalist covering law enforcement and criminal justice, and Darwin Bond Graham, the news editor for Oakland Side, is on the founding team of that, uh, of that site. We would love to hear from you. Have you tried to reform the Oakland Police Department or another police department from the inside or from the outside? We want to hear your experience. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 
888-789-6786, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Um, Ali, you know, earlier you referenced kind of the history of Oakland's policing, and, you know, we referenced at the top of the show, too, that this had been a really a long-time problem. One of the things that I found most remarkable about this book was the kind of connection you drew between Cold War anti-communism and kind of the ideological cast of the police, that this was actually a really part and parcel of the culture to be opposed to labor and, you know, the left. So through our research and through the writing of this book, uh, both of us have you know, over the years done work on other law enforcement agencies outside of the Oakland Police Department and the Bay Area. And in getting into, you know, we've kind of rubbed up against different cultures and different aspects of agencies down the years. But in the work on writers, the deep history, we really want, we realized that we wanted to make two broader points about what we learned from the formation of law enforcement in Oakland and kind of the West Coast, which is a little bit different of a model than mm. the East Coast and Midwest, Southeast, where it comes a little bit more from slave patrols. In the West, law enforcement is created later, and it's really focused more on doing two things. One is protecting private property of the moneyed classes, the elites, and two is social control, be it of whatever restive, you know, be of whatever restive um, or underclass elements there are, so-and-so underclass, that are in the society at that point in time. During the late 19th century, it was mostly the Chinese migrants who came to the West Coast to basically build California, the railroads, mine, to mine, um, to work the fields, so have you. In the early 20th century, it was labor radicals and communists and union members who were at the point who were at that point very organized and part of a burgeoning movement nationwide and then over time uh, during and after the second world war when the great migration brings a large influx of african americans to the bay area in particular the east bay and oakland to work in war industries it's the african american population mm -hmm. and throughout history you know you can see the Law you can see law enforcement and the Oakland Police, and specifically the Oakland Police Department, work hand in hand with, and even basically become part and parcel of various extreme right wing organizations like the Klu the Ku Klux Klan on the West Coast mm -hmm. in the 1920s, I believe. Yeah. Um, the American Legion as well, an extreme right wing organization that is probably comparable to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys of today, uh, that basically helped round up. Um, and attack the left-wing militants of the 1919s and mm -hmm. you know, 1910s and 20s. Then, 1960s, they made a unholy alliance <clears throat> with the Hells Angels in their uh, war against the student radicals and the Black Panthers. In fact, the Angels were um, basically served as informants for the Oakland Police Department during a certain era when they would pass on information about where the Panthers and other, you know, left-wing rads would mm -hmm. store their firearms and explosives and where their safe houses would be kind of in exchange for their OPD turning a little bit of a blind eye to their international methamphetamine smuggling operations, which extended as far out as Australia. Um, at that point in time, the Oakland chapter of the Angels actually put out a failed hit on an Australian cop. Um, it was, you know, there's... Jeez. But this all feeds into... Well, yeah, and then there were, you know, examples of cops, you know, 
relaying, you know, African-American cops. There was a man named Gwyn Pearson, who's a Tuskegee airman and then later became an off- a police officer in Oakland, one of the first black police officers in Oakland, and he worked through the mid-'70s, from the late-'40s to the mid-'70s. And he wrote a doctoral dissertation for UC Berkeley's sociology program about police culture and OPD's internal culture. It's a remarkable document. Mm-hmm. And he details the rampant anti-black, um, just over-bigotry in the department, said to his stuff said to his face, the way that cops carried themselves um, towards African-American residents, the way that they ba- he basically, at one point, stopped another cop from executing a black suspect. And the cop, the white cop then wheeled on him, pointed his revolver in his face and said, don't ever do that again or you're next. Um, one of his lieutenants was an open member of the John Birch Society who gave lectures around town, um, sponsored by the Birch Society openly, about how the 1965 Watts Rebellion was a communist plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The truth is that this culture, like, it's, there were, in 2016, there were members of the Oakland Police Department, officers, uh, excuse me, su- supervisors, not a line officers in the 7th Street Police headquarters wearing MAGA hats, red MAGA hats on the day after Donald Trump won his term in office. So that sort of hard right, you know, yeah. culture is really part and parcel of the department. And yeah. it's part and part of law, enf- it's part of law enforcement at this point. Yeah. You know, when we think about the reform efforts that were made, right, they're kind of coming up against that deeply entrenched culture, which is both, you know, part of uh, a particular strain of reactionary, you know, policing. But it's also, you know, just kind of the person to person kind of passed down. You know, these are they're trained by a particular person who teaches them how to police in a particular way. And so you're these reform efforts aren't just trying to change you know, the politics of the police. They're trying to actually change what the police do when they encounter someone in the street, right? So I was wondering, Darwin, if, you know, you could run down sort of what were the key parts of this agreement that this department entered into? Um, What were they supposed to change, right? They weren't like, don't join the John Birch Society. They were like, reduce the, you know, amount of racial profiling you're doing? Or what, what were the things that the, the department was supposed to change? Right. Um, it's a, the negotiated settlement agreement is a big, complicated document. There's like 52 different tasks. Each task has multiple subtasks. Um, they were meant to do things like reform the overall internal affairs process to ensure that Anytime a member of the public or someone within the department made a credible complaint that it would be taken seriously and thoroughly investigated and fairly investigated, um, the reforms included things like fairly dishing out discipline. Um, the department uh, even asked, you know, ask even uh, the average police officer in the Oakland Police Department. There was even a survey a few years ago asking them this, and a lot of the officers said they don't feel like discipline is fairly handed out and that the degree of discipline you get depends more on whether or not you're popular in the department Mm. and not really like whether you did something bad. And so the reform agreement has a number of things to try to make discipline more fair. The reform agreement had requirements that the department collect. And the writers were popular. Just the the writers were (laughs) very, the writers were so popular that again, two of them had been uh, barred from being field training officers under the police chief 
who prior to when Jerry Brown became mayor, when Jerry Brown became mayor, he appointed a new police chief, Richard Word. That police chief reinstituted them as training officers, partly because they were so popular in the department. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the reform agreement has just all these complicated tasks, um, collecting uh, racial stop data mm. in detail. Oakland was doing that long before other police agencies. Now it's a, there's a state law and a state board that requires it. Oakland was doing this long before. Oakland, the, actually, the Oakland Police Department should be praised for actually doing a lot of really pa- uh, groundbreaking things in terms of reform. They went out and partnered with Stanford University um, to process the racial stop data and to come up with policies to try to prevent um, racial profiling and pretext stops. And they've actually hugely reduced the numbers of stops of African-Americans in the city of Oakland. There's still a disparity, but the disparity in Oakland is a lot less. I'll mention one more key reform because it's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the Oakland Police Department used to shoot and kill like, you know, over... 15 a, people a year. Yeah, more than a dozen at least in, a, in an average year. And um, oftentimes one or two of them would be unarmed and it would be, a, you know, a big controversy. Um, nowadays, the Oakland Police Department will go a year without shooting anyone. It's uh, or maybe shooting one or two people. I mean, shooting anyone as a police officer is a really big deal. But that huge reduction in deadly use of force by the Oakland Police Department is directly attributable to policies that were put in place through the negotiated settlement agreement, including things like, you know, it used to be that an officer could be disciplined if they broke off a foot chase, Hmm. which is a weird policy. But now if an officer if an officer is like in a foot chase and they feel it's unsafe to pursue someone into an alleyway or a backyard, they're, they're encouraged, they won't, and they won't be disciplined for breaking off the foot chase. Break it off, call in more officers, set up a perimeter, conduct a safe search. So those kinds of reforms have been actually pretty successful in Oakland. Hmm. And if I may, yeah. um, those reforms didn't come about overnight. They negotiated just the existence of this document and the monitoring team and you know the requirement to reform uh, its practices didn't create, didn't lead to these... Uh, changes overnight they were they happened slowly over the years um on that period darwin's talking about when about a dozen people would be shot maybe about eight or nine fatally um every year that was the late 2010 that was the 2000s then the 2010s up until maybe about 2014 or so and i covered many of those shootings um that those changes came about because of very sustained social agitation, because of right. very sustained pressure on the department from outside. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of those cases, you know, the administrative discipline against those officers involved in some of the worst shootings. Um, I can't tell you how many of these things that I've covered down the road, down the years, um, bit by bit, they're all in the book. I'm not going to give it away for readers, <laughs> but, um, you know, names like Patrick Gonzalez, like Robert Roche, they will be familiar to longtime residents yeah. of the Bay Area. Hector Jimenez. You know, yep. one of the things that's kind of mind-blowing, and I want to, I do want to get to a call before the break, is, is just that, you know, 20 years of this consent decree, it may end soon, right? I mean, that's the, that's the idea. It may be, you know, even later, <laughs> later this month after, after all this time. The book reads like a series of failures, primarily. But somehow, through all of those failures, when you go back to the beginning and then you look now you do see that some progress has been made, right? Yeah. Is it enough? Right. And that's the question. question. That's, what, that, that's what I was going to ask you. Is it yeah. enough? Well, um, there's some doubt right now. There's certain things happening with the consent decree and with Oakland's oversight that may or may not impact the department's compliance 
with its uh, internal affairs reforms. There are some investigations that the Monitor has flagged as being, you know, maybe enough to raise questions about the department's ability to keep its reforms sustained down the future. But, I mean, the real question here is, okay, the consent decree has to end at one point or the other, right? What replaces it? Mm-hmm. What's the what's the stand-in for when the pressure of the outside monitor is taken away? In other cities where formal consent, where Department of Justice enforced consent decrees have been brought in, um, it's important to note that this is a private consent decree. Uh, you like Los Angeles, Washington D.C. Um, there have been consent decrees. There are consent decrees, I believe, in Seattle and New Orleans, many other major cities. There's been progress. You know, the LAPD consent decree is probably the best one to talk about because it's the most prominent one in the country until the Chicago uh, decree mm-hmm. was passed down. It came about as a result of a contemporaneous scandal to the riders, the Rampart scandal. The department got out from under the decree in the early 2010s over significant objection, including um, objections by the current um, head of the UC Berkeley Law School, Edward Erwin Chemerinsky. And sure enough, in the succeeding 10 years, the LAPD has backslid tremendously. It's been quite public. There have been problems with officers trafficking weapons, um, engaging in gang, falsifying gang cards um, in certain districts, sexually exploiting police explorers, cadets. And these were the and the investigations therein, you know, this is the sort of stuff that mm-hmm. the LAPD's consent decree was intended mm-hmm. to address. And the backsliding has been really noticeable. Let's return to this. We're going to definitely return to this um, later in the show. First, I want to get to uh, Mark in uh, the East Bay. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hi, how are you? Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Okay, thanks. You know, in the 1990s, I was a public defender in Oakland, and I was doing uh, felony preliminary hearings, and we would get a lot of dope and gun cases out of West Oakland. We knew about the writers way before the story ever broke. And we would tell the district attorney many times, uh, you know, you have a problem with these officers. They're, they're putting dope on people. They're beating people up. Uh, the district attorney would just ignore us and maybe sweeten the deal. And then the next time we'd come in and say, hey, this is another Frank Vasquez case. And so the, you know, the six-month deal would go down to a credit for time served deal, and the case would go away. So the district attorney just ignored it. And then when we would take cases and litigate them, we'd bring motions to suppress, and the judges, who were jaded, would listen to these cops perjure themselves, where the evidence was funky, it didn't fit, and they would still hold the defense to answer. And there were judges. We'd be in a courtroom where everyone in the room knew the officer was lying, and they would just hold the case to answer and would move along. Mm. There, so so both, both there was judges and DAs who had obligations to initiate their own investigations, but it was in their best interest to process the cases and, and send the fellows onto the joint. And yeah. it was a very, very jading thing. Oof. But it wasn't, it, it took, it took a, a rookie cop to go sideways on the, right. before anyone cared. But, but they were on notice for a long time. Yeah. And, and, it, and it was a huge sacrifice that Keith Batt made. I mean, let's make that clear. He was, yep. he was, his life was threatened. He he had to carry a concealed weapon for a while. Um, he you know was told by uh, other officers in the department that you know people were whispering about going to his home in the night. He had run-ins with police officers in restaurants where they you know threatened him, made him leave. Um, it, he he was he was you know scapegoated, and 
to this day, he's still a police officer in, in Pleasanton. And to this day, he is, you know, someone who is somewhat outcast by the Bay Area police community. Um, it, it, to, do, to be a whistleblower takes an enormous amount of courage and to like own and to, to really own and propel that kind of like reform. It's, it's hard to overstate like, you know, how explosive um, yeah. the allegations were that Keith Bat brought forward. You know, not just that, you know, the way in which Keith was ostracized is not unique to Oakland. Um, whistleblowers in law enforcement culture are despised. They're treated in unimaginable ways. There's an example in New York City, very famous from the 20, early 2011s, uh, 2010s. Adrian Schoolcraft, who blew the whistle on the NYPD's um, illegal quota program, he was involuntarily hospitalized on a psych hold by the NYPD to try and, cover, to try and keep him quiet. And that's, you know, a radical example. But look, Frank Serpico was basically left out, another NYPD whistleblower, was left out to dry on a narcotics call and shot in the face by a suspect and left for dead by his colleagues Mm. in the 1970s. So it's just, there's, there's a thin blue line and a lot of people will do, will go to some really extreme measures to keep it intact. You know, Mark from Berkeley was also mentioning the the planted drugs. And one of the things that's um, just horrifying in the book is how many even the Oakland PD just agreed, right, were, were, were planted drugs, right? Like that internal investigations found, yeah, this, this, this is not realistic. Um, yeah. We're talking about the Oakland Police Department, how difficult it is to create meaningful reform with the authors of the new book, The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. They are Darwin Von Graham and Ollie Winston. We're going to take some more of your calls after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about this monumental new piece of journalism. It is the book The Riders Come Out at Night by Ollie Winston and Darwin Bond Graham. It is about the Oakland Police Department and the two decades worth of reform efforts that have gone into reforming the department as well as the history that preceded this consent decree that the department's been operating under for for that time. Um Let's go back to the phones. We've got Karen in San Francisco. Welcome. Hello, Alexis. Hey, Karen. 
Thank you so much for this show. You know, it's really evoking for me recent San Francisco history. I was uh, called into activism when I saw the video of SFPV executing Mario Woods Mm -hmm. and became part of the Justice for Mario Woods Coalition. And we fought tooth and nail uh, to get uh, Chief Sir fired, uh, to get the U.S. Department of Justice. We wanted a consent decree here, but ultimately they just did um, a review of the police department under the cops. But that that, uh, U.S. Department of Justice review resulted in 272 recommendations for change at the San Francisco Police Department. But the officers who executed Mario were not held to account. They did not, uh, they did not face trial. Um, and, and we came to understand that out of every thousand people killed by police, only two officers um, are ever convicted of a crime. Yeah, Karen, thank you so much for, um, for you know, kind of widening our, our scope here to San Francisco because while this book is about Oakland, Darwin, I mean, this you think the lessons from this book apply broadly and maybe even specifically to the San Francisco Police Department. Absolutely. I, I think the caller made a great point that, you know, the Justice Department never even came into San Francisco to institute an actual consent decree. So there was never a requirement to change. There was rather this sort of, you know, advisory, um, you know, we'll, we'll conduct a study of the department and make recommendations. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice has gone into, you know, dozens of cities um, since the mid-90s to do these consent decrees, right? And this is essentially where the Justice Department investigates a police department for a pattern and practice of civil rights violations. If they find that, they will file a lawsuit and then they'll seek an order from a federal judge to put the department under a consent decree. Consent decrees are like the main way that we try to transform big, complicated institutions in society. They've been used to fix jails and schools and other things. They're used a lot on police departments. And one thing we see time and again with the USDOJ consent decrees used to fix police departments is the fixes are temporary. And like we mentioned earlier with LAPD, there's often backsliding afterward. Oakland is unique in the sense that the consent decree came about not from the U.S. Justice Department, but again from these two private civil rights attorneys who were representing over 100 West Oakland, mostly West Oakland residents. And these two attorneys, Jim Chan and John Burst, they have just been they have been unusually dedicated um, to pursuing these reforms. They haven't given up on them, um, unlike, you know, the Justice Department, which has packed up and left a lot of cities. And so Oakland Again, it's a sort of an outlier because it's been under this intense scrutiny and, and this intense demand for change for, for 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco also has the San Francisco Police Department during a report. I've been San Winston. Francisco Police yeah. Department quite some time. Um, and it's an incredibly tough nut to crack. They have the internal culture of the department has a very strong sense of solidarity. Um, <clears throat> there are many legacy officers as well whose parents worked in the police department. And there's never been a Keith Bat for SFPD. Mm-hmm. And also, it's worth noting that San Francisco's political class pulls a ton of weight in Washington and has, down the years, you know, 
one, there's been ways in which accountability has really been deflected from the SFPD. And law enforcement officers throughout the region have, all, have said to us down the years, you think we're messed up? San Francisco, no one's ever taken a hard look at that place. Hmm. No one's ever really kind of opened up, you know, opened up the hood and gotten underneath it. And the Department of Justice review really was pretty grim. I mean, look, the SFPD raided the home of a reporter a couple of years ago to try and find out information about who may have passed on, um, right. how a reporter got information about the circumstances surrounding the death of former uh, SF public defender uh, Jeff Adachi. And, you know, I could go on. Yeah. I won't. But yeah. at the same time, like, it, it, San Francisco deserves a similar effort. We were more focused on Oakland yeah. than that wasn't our bailiwick. Thank you for that uh, call, Karen, in San Francisco. Um, Hoel in Oakland, welcome to the show. No, thank you very much. And uh, first thing I wanted to say is I really do want to appreciate Ollie and Darwin for their efforts, not just with this book, which I'm looking forward to diving into. um, But over the years, um, they've been very um, tenacious in their efforts around um, reporting on these issues. And they're so important. Um, I've worked on public safety issues here in Oakland for over 20 years at this point uh, in West Oakland, in the Fouvale. And honestly, I've seen firsthand uh, um, what police abuse of power has done to the communities and to the people who are victims. And um, it's painful because I do a lot of work in the community and I talk to a lot of people. And, you know, when it comes to public safety, the first thing that a lot of people above 580 think is when it comes to crime is, oh, we need more cops. Mm. We need more cops. And there's just, there's just a, even in the year 2023, with, you know, the protests that have taken place over the years regarding George Floyd, regarding Black Lives Matter, and there's still a disconnect between these wealthier, wider communities above 580 and their perception as to what the solution for public safety in Oakland is. Because for a lot of them, they view police as part of the solution and without realizing that for black and brown folks in Oakland and throughout the country, Police are part of the problem, and um, the way that they have been operating since their inception, since their inception as an institution. Mm -hmm. And just one point of information, just to clarify things about how bad it is and how much has to change in order for us to get to a point of, of, of progress, because we're still not there yet. And like I said, I've been working on these issues for over 20 years. Since I was in West Oakland when the writers doing the, um, when the uh, settlement happened um, in the early 2000s and having to deal with that. Um, all the measures that have raised, that, that attempted to raise money for police in Oakland, and none has ever passed as a standalone. None. The, no, I think the closest came when uh, um, Jerry Brown tried to do his 100-cop um, measure, FF, I believe it was. And uh, um, though it got the majority, it wasn't, um, it, it, he wasn't able to do anything yeah. about it because he wasn't, yeah. So none of them, they've always been tied with fire, always been tied with parks or something along those lines. And that just shows you that the, how toxic the police culture is and perceived by many people in Oakland and how much we have to work to make it happen, yeah. to make the change that has to happen. And that change won't ever happen unless people internalize how problematic fundamentally the police are both in Oakland and as an institution in this country. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that comment. I mean, I, you know, here, here is a fundamental thing I want to put to you and Darwin, I'm going to put it to you first. Um, 
there are very high levels of crime remaining in Oakland. And perhaps the most hopeful thing in this whole book is the idea that reforming the police department so that it was fairer to residents, reforming the police department so that there were less police shootings, that 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 would actually help crime go down, right? I mean, that flies directly in the face of some of the rhetoric around like we need to be like, quote unquote, tough on crime. We need to like let cops, quote unquote, do their jobs. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you came to that. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that some people might have that, you know, reforming the police um, is essentially putting handcuffs on them and preventing them from effectively addressing crime. Um, If you look at crime rates over over different years, over the decades, and then you match it up to, say, like reform efforts and political shifts in the country and down to the city level, um, those things don't there's not like a relationship between like, you know, the more reform or the more restraint on the police, the more they're told to respect the Constitution, then, you know, the more crime goes up because there's no relationship there. So, for example, you know, in the 80s and the 90s in Oakland, um, the the political leadership very much told the police, you know, go out and arrest people and crack down really hard on the drug economy. And yet crime went up a lot and it peaked in the early 90s in Oakland. It was it was terrible. Again, under Jerry Brown, uh, when Brown was mayor of Oakland and um, Ignacio de la Fuente was the president of the city council and they brought in, you know, um, police leadership like Anthony, uh, Anthony Batts later on. Um, people who wanted to institute things like youth curfews and other like tough on crime measures. Gang injunctions. Gang injunctions. Mm-hmm. Again, crime spiked. Shooting spiked in 2006 and they spiked again in 2011-12. Um, if you look at the period where the most progress was made, instituting the reforms and the negotiated settlement agreement, this was under a former police chief named Sean Went from about 2013-14 uh, through about 2000. Um, 16. 16. Mm-hmm. <laughs> crime, violent crime was dropping in the city. Shootings were beginning to drop very much. Um, and so these things don't really, uh, these, these things don't really line up at all. Um, reform is quite possible uh, and, and effective. Um, and it, there's not really a relationship to like crime rates. Yeah. And I will say that the, another thing that happened during that period when Sean Went was running the department. It started a little bit before him, but there was a very sustained attempt to focus on the small number of people in Oakland, to identify and focus on the small number of people in Oakland who commit the vast majority of violent crimes, robberies, shootings, murders. And, you know, there are many names put on it. In Oakland, it was Operation Ceasefire. And that sustained effort and very, you know, very focused and thought out and kind of a little bit contentious because there was a bit of a carrot and a stick approach where you know, people would be called in and told, you know, knock off the knock stuff off. It's a condition of your parole. We catch you. We're going to throw you in a federal prison this time, um, mm-hmm. not just state charge. It did have some success. Um, and there were a couple generations of people who were involved in that violence who were basically taken out of the equation. Um, is that the solution for the underpinning issues that create, you know, that lead to violent crime? No, they aren't because after that program was kind of wound down or changed and certain key personnel left, um, I want to say right before the pandemic, actually, things changed and Oakland's violent crime rate started to creep back up and people, different people enter into it. So 
you know, you can take, this is one of the problems with arresting your way out of the problem. You can take certain people off the board, but once you do, there's going to be people who, if the same conditions persist, then... You mean like social and economic conditions? Poverty, discrimination. The deep, deep, lying causes Racial discrimination. Yeah. The reason why you have such deep inequities in society and what creates these sort of environments for crime to flourish in. And again, you know, crime solving has not always been part of a law enforcement rationale. It kind of comes into play in the mid 20th century. We outline that in our deep history chapters. Um, But again, you know, it's not to say people deserve safety, but is the current system we have the best way to it? I don't, I can't think of anybody who can think, who would say that American law enforcement is working in the manner it's supposed to either on both sides of the issue, either somebody wears a badge or somebody who's on the other side of it. So, and I mean, this leads to like a, you know, a a big question that in particularly in the post 2020 um, era is one, which is, you know, what do you make of the movement for police abolition and how do you think it has changed um, police departments or or the reform efforts around uh, police now that they're sort of a, a, a flank on the other side of the reform movement? Yeah, these movements definitely changed the conversation in a huge way, right? I mean, I remember uh, two, you know, two years ago in Oakland at the height of the protests that were happening after the murder of George Floyd and the killing of Breonna Taylor and others. Um, the Oakland City Council, you know, voted to potentially slash the police budget. They, it, this was an aspirational vote. They said we planned in the next budget, you know, in the coming budgets to slash the police budget by 50 percent or 150 million dollars and make huge reinvestments of money and um, non-police public safety programs. Um, they didn't end up doing that, of course. They actually increased the police budget um, slightly and then they peeled off a little bit of money and funded some non-police public safety programs. Um, but the terrain has shifted enormously. Um, but now we're seeing, you know, sort of, um, backlash at the, at the national level. We're seeing, um, we see it here in San Francisco. We saw it with the recall of the district attorney here. We're seeing it with um, a lot of local politics where essentially, you know, although maybe reforms have gone too far, um, uh, this is an ongoing, you know, political, uh, discussion, um, People need to look back at the history um, really closely because this stuff really isn't new. If you if you go back, uh, just one example, if you go back to the 1960s and look at the Great Society programs and the War on Poverty, the way that those were framed coming out of Washington was that these programs would alleviate, again, the, uh, the underpinning social inequalities, particularly racial inequality in America's urban areas. And by treating those root causes, we could, you know, um, alleviate alleviate crime and a lot of local leadership, including some members of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, were really into that and they wanted to lead some of those programs. The local political leadership at the time, and some and then some of the state leadership, everybody from like you know Mayor John Houlihan in Oakland up to Governor Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. they were not down with that kind of reform. They thought that more police were the answer. So about a lot of those big federal social programs were eventually defunded and scrapped, and the police departments were built up. 1970s, 80s, 90s come along, and we see huge explosions in violent crime in the country. That's mass incarceration. Mass yeah. incarceration, and the problem wasn't solved. But the, these debate, these same debates we're having right now, defund the police or, you know, f- get more police. We've, we've had these debates in the past. Um, it, history is something that people would be good to look back at and learn from. Yeah. Ali, what do you, what do you think, as we wrap up here, Given that history, given that you've you've been researching, you know, police departments and investigating them for for a long time, 
do you expect to see meaningful change like in your lifetime to the way policing is done in the United States? I think there has been meaningful change. Uh, I think there has been meaningful change over the years. I think that the national conversation, again, it's a, as Darwin said, it's a pendulum. It swings back and forth. And I do think that the period that we've seen, the past 10 years in California, there has been a ton of laws passed on a state level. Let's just talk about the state legislature to peel back restrictions on public view to police officers' disciplinary histories. Mm-hmm. To There has been massive changes in terms of how California does gang documentation and tracking gang members and the sort of penalties that can and can't be imposed. Gang injunctions are basically extinct, which 15 years ago, if you rewound the clock, um, a lot of people would think that's not yeah. possible. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the work that's been done on the state legislature level is a result of communities throughout the state, you know, from San Diego up to Eureka, really taking it on themselves to change a system that incarcerated an ungodly amount of people in the 1990s and early 2000s. I mean, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, The Golden Gulag, I mean, I can't think of any better way to describe what had been created by that monoduro system, by that zero-tolerance system, three strikes and you're out, through the 70s and 80s and 90s. And um, I do think that there's progress, and it's really, you know, it's important that readers and listeners note that this is not something that you engage in for a week or a month or a summer of protest or participation in your local community. The city of Oakland has gotten to the point that it's gotten to. It's been, you know, it happened in fits and starts and it's very halting, but in the end it happened down the years through, you know, really deep commitment by the residents and the citizenry to making sure that everybody had a better life. It's a great place to end it. We've been talking about the Oakland Police Department and the meaningful reforms that have been made by community activists and the department itself. The new book by Ollie Winston and Darwin Bondgram is that writers come out at night, brutality, corruption, and cover-up in Oakland. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.